0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to our scripture reading today of Revelation 5, 1-14 through 14, and follow along as I read aloud. Revelation 5, 1-14. through 14. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 13 through 22 this morning, and there's not a verse 23. We're wrapping up the book of Ruth. Can you believe it? Uh, some of you are going, Yes, I can. It, maybe it's felt like a long series. Others, it's felt short. For me, it's been back and forth as we've gone through this, but this has been a, a powerful, powerful book to preach through and be reminded that there is a Redeemer. As we come to a close on Ruth, I do want to go back to the beginning and and give a recap, especially for those of you who are visiting for the first time and are are asking the question, who's Ruth? And maybe you've never read the book of Ruth. Well, I want to start with how it began, and I'll walk you all the way through the short four-chapter story. It began with things going from bad to worse. Do do y'all remember that? A famine in the land that drove a family away from their home in Bethlehem to sojourn in a foreign land in the land of Moab. And while they were there, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, dies. So now we have a widow. Naomi's sons, Malon and Kilion, marry two Moabite women. And, but after 10 years of infertility, those sons die. So now we've got a childless widow. But this book is a story of redemption, and that's good news. And so while Naomi was working in the fields now in Moab to provide for herself, having no husband, having no sons, she heard through the laborers in the fields in Moab that the Lord, Yahweh, had visited his people in Bethlehem and had ended the famine there. He brought them food again. So Naomi packs up the little that she had, and she begins to sojourn back to Bethlehem, her home. But she urged her daughters-in-law to return to their parents' homes in hopes that if they stayed in Moab, maybe they would find a nice, decent Moabite husband who could provide rest for them, a husband who could protect and care for and love them in ways that Naomi could not. So Orpah kissed Naomi. It was a kiss farewell. And she walked away in tears. But Ruth clung to Naomi. She made a covenant promise to worship Naomi's God, Yahweh, and Him alone. She made a covenant with Naomi that she would stay by her side, This was not a till death do we part. This was even in the grave, I will not part from you covenant. She said, I'll be buried where you're buried. So they made their journey to Bethlehem. And by God's grace, they made it to Bethlehem. And they arrive. And Naomi sees people and places and things that jog memories of 10 plus years ago. When life was normal, pre-famine, normal life, when she still had her husband, still had her boys, and it just breaks her. And so she cries out in this bitter lament, feeling in this moment as though God viewed her and was treating her as his own enemy. Do you remember that? And Ruth, who's still with her, goes straight out into the fields to glean, to get scraps of food to put on a table to feed her and her mother-in-law. She shows Naomi the loyalty, the faithfulness, the steadfast love of Yahweh. And Boaz shows great favor to Ruth in his field. He's generous towards her. He's kind to her. But then comes the end of the barley and the wheat harvest. And after this season of gleaning and having plenty of food to provide for herself and for Naomi, that harvest is coming to an end. What now? Well, Naomi seeks out rest for her daughter-in-law at the end of that harvest by sending Ruth to the threshing floor where Boaz will be, and she sends Ruth to propose to Boaz to say, bury me, please. May I take refuge under your wings as I have taken refuge under the wings of Yahweh, problem is there's a redeemer that's nearer than Boaz. Boaz would have been the right guy to go to. He was a relative of Elimelech. He He could have provided redemption for Ruth. He could have redeemed the land for Naomi, but there is a nearer redeemer than him. He legally is in a bind here. And so what does he do? The very next morning, Boaz, the worthy man, goes to the gates of the city. And he presents the matter of redemption before the Redeemer, whom God brings to the gate. And before the elders and before witnesses. And the Redeemer ultimately declines the opportunity to redeem Naomi and Ruth because marrying Ruth would compromise his inheritance. It would cost him something to redeem the widows. And he wasn't worthy to pay. But Boaz was. Boaz embraced the responsibility of a redeemer. He declared redemption in the public streets and in the gates before the people. They heard him say, I will do it. I will step up. I'll man up and I'll redeem these widows. They're safe in my wing. Praise God. The witnesses honor him. For this noble deed. They say a blessing over him, over Ruth, over his family. And that brings us to where we are today as we close this book in chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. And what we see in the passage this morning is that the significance of the redemption that has taken place is far greater, far reaching than it even appears. You see, God is actually working a grand redemption that would impact not just this family, but the whole nation of Israel, and not just the nation of Israel, friends. But all peoples of all tribes and all nations, all across the world will be affected through the redemption that God is working here. There's a grand redemption here. And it starts with the lineage of Boaz and Ruth and it continues from there until a greater redeemer than even Boaz arrives. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the the King of glory, the great redeemer. And so for this reason, I've entitled this morning's sermon A Grand Redemption. Look with me at, at Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David I want to set the scene for us Redemption has been accomplished as I said in the gates but we're not at the gates anymore we're at the home of Boaz and Ruth they're married they have a child now This is at least 9 months later And the first thing I want you to see here is that redemption is consummated. Redemption is consummated. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Pause. Praise God. He said he would, and now he's done it. He's followed through with integrity, with honor. He really proves to be a worthy man, as they said earlier. He married her. Ruth's request at that threshing floor has been met. She's Mrs. Boaz now. She's not going to be gleaning in fields anymore. People will be bringing grain to her table. The worthy man has married the worthy woman and God has granted conception to this couple. Praise God. It says that he went into her and the Lord gave her conception. So not only did he fulfill the responsibility of Marrying Ruth, but he actually has fulfilled the responsibility of, even further, of pursuing procreation with Ruth. Why? Why is that significant? Because what it means is he is not just saying, I will marry you. He's saying, I will marry you in hopes of perpetuating the name of the dead in his inheritance. If you remember back in Ruth, verse, uh, four, or chapter 4, verse 10, it said that part of his promise in his declaration was to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. He is fulfilling the role and responsibility of a levir. It's a leveret marriage, a levir, the, the role of a brother-in-law to a deceased widow. Uh, To a widow of a deceased husband, rather. So Boaz, he's done his part. But here's the deal. He can't guarantee conception. He can't actually promise Ruth, I will give you a child. That's the Lord's doing. And and that's what it even says. Look at the text. It says, the Lord gave her conception, not Boaz. And so we need to keep in mind that this, this is very significant because Ruth had been infertile She had not been able to have children for 10 years while she was in Moab. God is sovereign and God is gracious to answer the prayers of the witnesses at the gate in chapter four, verse 11 and 12. She is like Rachel and Leah. She does bear a child. God is sovereign over the womb. And friends, this is a hard truth to, to consider at times when, when you or someone that you love is battling infertility, it's, it's painful, truth. It's a hard reality. And so I do wanna just take a moment as, as a pastor and just say, if that's you or if that's someone that you know, I'm sorry. That's hard. And I know that God is compassionate towards you just as much as he is sovereignly reigning over your life and, and all life. I want to encourage you, if that's you or if that's someone close to you, that he's not only sovereign, friends, he's good. And I know you know that. And so I'm not trying to preach that down your throats. I'm just communicating a a truth that you already know. He is good. And it may be that God, in his sovereign and good plan for you, may be leading you to fostering or adopting and proclaiming the gospel through that, or maybe that he will grant you a child biologically in the future. I don't know. He knows. It might be that God desires that you are raising up spiritual children, that you are discipling the next generation as a spiritual mother, a spiritual father, in the ways that Jesus Christ did in his ministry on earth, in the ways that the Apostle Paul did in his ministry on earth as a single man. I want to also encourage you with this, that while marriage and sex and children and, and all these things are good things, they're not ultimate things. Jesus Christ is ultimate. He is. And he gives himself to us freely. But another thing I want to point out here that I think is very important is that this is the second time And only the second time in this whole book that the narrator has God as the subject of a verb. Remember, verbs are are things you do, right? What is God doing? Explicitly, what is he doing? Well, it said that the Lord gave her conception. He's giving life. The first time we see God used as the subject of a verb was chapter 1, verse 6 said the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So what does this say about our God? He is the giver and the sustainer of life. There is no life apart from this God. God graciously gave and sustained life in Ruth's womb all the way to term. And Ruth gave birth to the child, and and she bore a son. And this is significant, because that son would be Elimelech's heir. This redemption that's being orchestrated by God above is once again celebrated, and, and that's my second point for us. Redemption is not just consummated. Redemption is celebrated. Look at verse 14 through 17. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who's more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. So we see Yahweh being praised here by a group of women. Who are these women? Well, these are some of Naomi's old friends from Bethlehem. These women, they met her when, and greeted her when Naomi and Ruth had come back from Moab to Bethlehem. And do you remember, they, they saw Naomi and they looked at her and they, they said, Is this Naomi? Because the woman had changed. She, she's different. She, she is without her husband. She is without her sons. She is self-described as empty and bitter. She's lamenting her loss. Is this Naomi? These women have seen Naomi at her best before the famine. At her worst when she returned after the famine. Empty and bitter, questioning even God's steadfast love towards her. And these women have seen Naomi redeemed. They are looking at God's grand redemption in not just Ruth's life, but in Naomi's life. And this is the kind of community that we should seek and we should foster as a church, is it not? I mean, this is the community we want. This is the community that that comes together and rejoices in times of peace and times of happiness and times where there's more smiles than tears, right? This is also a community that we should be fostering that mourns with one another when there are times of great grievances and times of despair and mourning and weeping and we should be able to lament with one another and before God the things that we are heartbroken over, including the loss of a husband, including the loss of a child, and more. And and this should teach us not only to rejoice and to weep together, but to celebrate God's redemption in our lives together. God is making you and I together more like his son as we come together and look to his son and worship him in spirit and truth with an open Bible. He's doing that, and so we should rejoice when we see it, when a marriage in this church is on the brink of ruin. And divorce is continually being uttered from the lips of a husband or a wife. And God uses His Gospel through saints in this church to go. There's hope. It doesn't have to be over. Look to the cross. Forgive one another. Repent of your sin. Be reconciled to one another in the way that God has reconciled you to Himself through Christ We should rejoice in that. We should rejoice when that couple is now discipling other men and women and couples in the church that there is hope for marriage on the brink of ruin. That's just one example, but in all the redemption that takes place in this church, let's not stay silent. Let's speak of it. Let's bring it up and praise God for what He is doing. Amen? There is a redeemer in the heavens who is worthy of all praise. He has not ceased to be a redeemer, worthy of all praise. He's working through an instrument of redemption in Boaz. Boaz was a type of redeemer. But what's interesting is that these women even consider the child of Boaz and Ruth to be a type of redeemer as well. They refer to him as a redeemer here. This child is not a redeemer in the technical sense. He didn't do what Boaz did. He's a redeemer in a symbolic sense. He's bringing joy and a sense of security to Naomi and Ruth. And so the women, they sing a blessing over this child, this redeemer that really echoes the blessing that the witnesses sang over Boaz at the gate. Different, but similar. And they said this, the women... May his name be renowned in all Israel. It's referring to the child. Renowned in all Israel. That, that word means called out. In one sense, I suppose you could say that the name of Yahweh, Boaz, and the child could be called out in all Israel. That would, I think that's okay. But grammatically and syntactically, it is referring to the child. So I, I don't want you to miss what's happening. Because the witnesses at the gate said, what about Boaz? Let's look back. Ruth 4, verse 11. May you, Boaz, act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in where? Bethlehem. That's a city, that's a town within Israel, right? But now these women are saying, may Boaz's offspring be renowned in Israel, Do you see what is happening here? The scope of redemption is widening here explicitly in the text. There is a grander redemption that's taking place. It's continuing significant. What is the significance of this child to Naomi? Well, verse 15. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. There are two major pieces here. Obed is going to be a restorer of her life. In a sense, this phrase is actually restorer of the soul. Uh, So if you are remembering Psalm 23, that that our God is a shepherd to us, his sheep, and that he restores our soul. So in, in a similar type of way, the child would do this for Naomi. It means that basically this child is giving her a new lease on life. It's, it's refreshing her soul. It's giving her joy. But then there's also this second part, that, that he would be a nourisher of her in her old age. What does that mean? This is more practical. This is saying as she ages and Ruth ages, that this child will also age, will grow older, and will be a young man who can provide and protect and care for them when Boaz goes to God in death. These women, they not only remind Naomi of the blessing of this child, of the significance of Obed, they they remind Naomi of the blessing of Ruth. They said this in verse 15, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. If you recall When Naomi and Ruth show up in Bethlehem, the women were questioning even, is this Naomi? But they didn't say anything about Ruth, did they? She's a nobody. I mean, she's just a Moabite woman. What is she even doing here? But now they have not just heard of her faithfulness to Ruth, they have seen her faithfulness to Ruth. And so they speak of Ruth and they don't call her the Moabite anymore. She's one of us now. She is your daughter-in-law. She has loved you, Naomi. She has shown you the love of Yahweh. She might be more of an Israelite than us. She is not just in Naomi's family. She is in the larger family, the community of the Israelites in Bethlehem because she has yoked herself to the one true God, Yahweh, taken refuge in his wings. She has shown the love of God. Jesus Christ said, the two greatest commandments are these. And I just love, the lights are flickering. There's so many distractions this morning because we're talking about the most powerful and important message on earth, It's a message that's going to be proclaimed for all eternity. So don't let the babies or the lights or anything else distract you. We want babies here, and we'll preach with the lights off. Amen? Let's lean in. I love it when I hear a baby cry. I mean, we're talking about baby Obed here. Listen. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus said is the fulfillment of all the law in these two great commandments, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. They had those texts here. That had already happened before Ruth was written, and so what's happening here is a reminder that Ruth is showing the love of God that Christ perfected because no one has shown perfect love but him and him alone. We've all failed to love God perfectly. We've all failed to love our neighbor perfectly, but Christ hasn't. That's what this is drawing our attention to here. Ruth's value is put this way: She's, she she has more to Naomi than seven sons. This is super interesting. The uh, at this time in ancient uh, with the ancient Israelites, they viewed having seven sons as like the ideal family. You know, cool. I, I, I don't. There's no other commentary on that. That's great, right? Like have babies. Let's do it. Um, raise up disciples. This number seven, though, it also represents a, a fullness or a completeness as well, right? That seven is that number seven is like a, a total number, a wholeness there. Ruth has supplied in herself more than that, is what the author's saying. And she supplied a son. Keep that in mind and look at verse 16. It says Naomi took the child, this precious child, this significant child, Obed and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, I want to back up and ask a question and reflect on it together. Was Naomi nursing this child in the way that we typically think of nursing a child? Was the child at Naomi's breast No, the child is on her lap, okay? So let's just clarify that. The child is being treated like a child is treated by a grandparent. Naomi is the grandmother of this child. She's embracing her responsibility. But then you gotta ask the question, well, then why does the text say a son has been born to Naomi? And, And remember, context helps us understand things like this that maybe seem a little bit more murky because what has not happened here is Naomi has not taken the child away from Ruth to be his mother, okay? That is not what's happened. This child is like a son to Naomi in the sense that he is the heir to Elimelech, her husband. Does that make sense? She's his grandmother, she's doing her thing, Ruth's gonna raise him as the mother. Everyone's celebrating. They named the kid Obed. Interesting name. It's an abbreviated version of Obadiah. I go by Arch. That's the abbreviated version of Archibald. Call me whatever you please. Obediah means servant of Yahweh. The abbreviated version, simply means one who serves. But I think that there is a connection here because Obed would be the one who served his mother and his grandmother as they, again, were aging and were in need of physical, uh, physical needs being met. He would be able to work that redeemed land that Boaz had bought for Naomi. And we're told that Obed does indeed grow up. We're told that he has a family of his own. And he has at least one son. It says, Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. And this little brief genealogy here, it hints at the significance of this child that they would go beyond the immediate redemption that we see here with Ruth and Naomi. It's continuing, this redemption, this grand redemption Obed would be the grandfather of, drumroll, King David. And that's just a teaser. And then the author goes into a closing genealogy. Stay with me, it's a genealogy. It's beautiful. It's absolutely wonderful. This is the climax of the sermon. And this is my third and final point. Redemption is continued. Redemption is continued. So it's consummated It's celebrated, and it continues. Look at verse 18 through 22. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezrod fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now, I want to talk about something that might seem boring at face value, but it is. It's not. Just not, okay? Here it is. There there tends to be two types of genealogies in our Bible. Number one is a segmented genealogy, meaning it's displaying the ethnic relationships of a tribe, clan, uh, or family, even nations at times, okay? So think big picture, segmented. And then there's a linear genealogy, and that's the one that we're looking at here. It starts with a name, and it ends with a name. And that last name is telling us something. It's significant. It's a mic drop. It's saying, and this guy. And it ends with David. The individual entries, they don't need to dominate our conversation this morning. You can talk about it in a community group. This week, But the Old Testament, it doesn't really say much about these people, to be honest. These people between Perez and David, not much. And it's not that they're unimportant. Every one of these names, let me just talk about two things off this. Every one of these names is highlighting God's faithfulness to continue a lineage of grace and redemption. And these names... Wake up the reader, pours cold water on our heads, and say, this isn't just a genealogy to snooze to, this is significant, this is reminding us, this is not a story, this is a fairy tale. This is a real historical event, real people, real family, real Naomi, real Ruth, real Boaz, real Obed, real women, real witnesses, This is the real deal. And it starts off this genealogy with the phrase, "These are the generations of." Hear a lot of that in Genesis. Why? The repetition of this phrase is reminding every single one of us this morning that there is a grand narrative, a theme of redemption in the scriptures that started in Genesis 3:15. When, after Adam and Eve had fallen to temptation because of the serpent, God speaks consequences over them, and He also speaks a promise over them. He says that through the woman shall be born an offspring, and this offspring will one day crush the head of the serpent. It will bruise his heel, but He will crush his head. Praise God. And so we're waiting. I mean, all Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and on and on and on. We're waiting for this man to enter the world and crush the head of the serpent who brought sin and death into the world. We're waiting on a Redeemer. They were waiting on a Redeemer. Boaz would die. Obed would die. Jesse would die. David would die. But there's one after him who though he would taste death for sinners would rise from the dead three days later as prophesied victorious over sin and death and the devil for our sake. I want to back up and talk about Perez. We could probably close with a prayer. That offspring's Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of glory. Let's talk about Perez. Now let's get back to Jesus. Perez, who is he? And why do you start with Perez? It's, It's kind of interesting to me because Judah was Perez's daddy. And Judah was told by his father, Jacob, In Genesis 49, that the scepter, that's what kings hold, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, from the clan of Judah. He's saying, in Egypt, he's saying that the clan of Judah would be the clan where kings would come from, out of the tribes of Israel. It's a significant tribe. So why don't you just start with Judah and then talk about Perez and then keep moving on? I think there's two reasons why he he didn't talk about Judah. Judah's connected to Perez. So that's gonna be, obviously, that's gonna be touched on by just the the nature of who's Perez. Oh yeah, he's the son of Judah. But it speaks with Perez first because Perez, like Obed, was the product of a leveret marriage. Now, I I mentioned this last week. I'll just quickly say it again. So Judah had, had sons, and this foreigner woman named Tamar married one of the sons, and then he died. Remember? And then the leveret marriages. well, now she should marry another one of Judah's sons. And she did, and then that brother died. So now Judah's going, don't really want to give another son to my you know, daughter-in-law Tamar. Kind of want to have my son alive, not dead, and it seems to be a little suspicious, single variable there. And so he does not give a son to Tamar, and Tamar, it's deceitful, it's immoral, but she pursued relations with Judah, and Judah, it's sinful, we all are sinners, he participated, and the product of Judah and Tamar was Perez. So, I mean, I, I kind of mentioned this, but the second piece is the fact that Tamar and Ruth are both foreign women, and who do they marry? Men from the line of Judah, which is what tribe? The tribe where what comes from? Kings. You can't, you cannot make this up. And this is God's infallible, inerrant, God-breathed word. It's his story of redemption that he's orchestrating. So that's Perez, and then you got names, and then you got David, and that's how this story ends with David. Why David? Apart from Moses, David is the most important figure in the Old Testament. I'm obviously, I'm not including God in there, okay? God's first, then probably David. I don't know. Moses and David, they'd have to go on a race to see who's first. It doesn't matter. David's important. He's literally known as a man after God's own heart. I am like desperate for that title. I want, I want to live my life in pursuit of that title through repentance and remembrance of my Redeemer's work for me, a sinner. He's the first legitimate king of Israel. And I say legitimate because Saul came before him, but he had no heart. He did not have a heart after God. So God raised up and anointed David. David preoccupies 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. He's even in the Chronicles. He's all over the place. He wrote half of the Psalms, friends. 75 of the 150. This dude is insignificant. The messianic hopes of Israel are grounded in who? David. Going back to the prophet Nathan's Proclamation and declaration that the Lord's covenant with David would be this: Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, "The throne would be established through David forever." Well, he died. So there's one coming after David who's better than David. He's the king of kings, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The one that we gather to worship together. The one who churches all over the globe and every nation and tongue and tribe. They are worshiping the name of Jesus. Once with God the Father in heaven above, He gave it up out of love. He came and He put on human flesh because we needed a Redeemer. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 connects to this last verse in chapter 4. Ruth 1, 1, in the days when the judges ruled, that's the context. What's the setting of the book of Ruth? The days when the judges ruled. Bad days, lawlessness, evil, no leadership, bad governance, no governance. So God's raising up judges periodically and every time they die, the people waste their lives back into apostasy trying to decide what's best in their own mind for how to live in a world that God designed. We've all done that. We still do that at times. We need the Redeemer. Judges chapter 21, verse 25 concludes the book saying, in those days, the days of the judges, there was... Something missing. There was no king. Not even a bad one. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But friends, through Obed comes not just a king, it's the greatest king that Israel had ever had. It was King David. And yet... There is a greater king than David. And He comes from the line of David. Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And I want you to listen to the words of Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. In Revelation 22.16, He says, I am the root and the offspring of who? David. What is He saying? He's saying that I came before David and I come after David. I am David's creator. David would not exist without the root. I'm the root. And yet, he's also David's offspring? Yes, because God came and put on human flesh in the tribe of Judah to be king of all kings. You can't make this up. He's not just David's creator. He's not just David's descendant. He is David's redeemer. Bathsheba, Uriah, and more. We don't even know all the sin that was heaped up in David's life. The looks, the the lust, the thoughts, the actions, but he needed a Redeemer. He needed a greater Redeemer and King than himself. He could not save himself, so God sent Christ to save David and anyone else who would take refuge in his wing by confessing their sin, repenting of their sin, turning from it, and trusting that this sinless Savior King, what He's done in His life, and His death, and His resurrection, is enough. There's nothing left to do. Redemption is accomplished in Jesus Christ. The purpose of this genealogy is to highlight what the book is trying to highlight, which is this, there is a Redeemer and it's God. Yeah, he uses Boaz, and yeah, the realization of it is Obed, and yes, after him comes David, but it's God and his son, Jesus Christ. And when people hear the Gospel preached, this morning, all over the world, Anyone who puts their faith in Christ alone will be redeemed, forgiven of their sin, totally, completely washed white as snow because of the precious blood of this King, this Redeemer, The grand redemption, it goes beyond this individual family in Bethlehem. It goes beyond the nation of Israel. It goes to all nations, every tribe, every nation, every tongue. It was promised in Genesis 12. It was promised in Genesis 15. It was promised in Genesis 22. The Lord told Abraham, like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, that will be your people. That will be God's people. That in God's people, all nations on earth will be blessed in the offspring, which is Christ. Jesus' genealogy, it continues where we leave off here in Ruth, chapter 1 of Matthew. It includes three foreign women from the nations, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth as part of the lineage of this Redeemer, Jesus Christ. John had a vision in Revelation 7 verse 9 through 10 and it says this, After this I looked and behold a great multitude and no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages and they're standing before the throne. Whose throne? Not David's. Jesus. They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they're clothed in white robes because they have been justified through faith in Christ. They've got palm branches in their hands and they are crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus Christ has accomplished redemption for us at the cross. The Lamb has been slain. The spotless Lamb slain for sinners. His death was the price of our redemption. He is the King of kings. He wore a crown of thorns. Jesus crushed that head of the serpent, and in the process, His heel was bruised. But three days later, He rose from the dead. When all hope had seemed lost to Christ's disciples, He rose from the dead. That's what we get to celebrate this Easter. That's what we get to celebrate every Lord's Day, that our Savior, our Redeemer, our Redeemer has victory over sin and death. And again, and I say this to you this morning, listen to me, if you will take refuge in Him through repentance of sin and faith alone in Him, alone, you will experience a grand redemption of your soul. You will not just have your life extended. You will have eternal life. You'll be reconciled to God. He will no longer be at enmity and war with you. You will have peace with Him. He will become your loving Father. That is a privilege that cannot be earned. You must be adopted into His family by this grace. What's God doing today? What's he doing right now? Here and all over the globe, he is redeeming lost souls through the preaching of his gospel. What is God doing today? He's preserving a remnant through the preaching of his gospel. He's holding you fast to the finish line because he is good. Tonight at 5 p.m., we're going to celebrate the baptisms of five individuals whom God has graciously redeemed. And after we baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we will then, as a gathered people, give God Almighty the praise he deserves for his great mercy. And his work in and through Christ, our Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Christ. Help our souls marvel in the grand redemption. The story that you've written and that you're working out even today. Lord, I pray if there is even one soul who has heard your voice this morning through your word and your spirit, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they would die to themselves And take refuge in the blood of Christ. That they would be born again into the kingdom of God. To be children of God. And servants of the great God on high. That there would be one more voice singing your praise on earth this morning. That's what we pray for. Help us to be a church that actively leverages the diversity of gifts within our body to advance your gospel so that our lost brothers and sisters could be reconciled to you and brought into the family of God, fellowship with you and with us forever. Amen.